Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 3rd. With just over three weeks away from the provincial election, what do the locations of the campaign stops tell us about the priorities of both major political parties? Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us to discuss the campaign trail so far and what we may expect to see in the weeks ahead. Can incorporating solar technology in Canada's agriculture industry improve crop yields and lower food costs? We explore the benefits of solar on Canadian farms with Joshua Pierce, professor and chair in information technology and innovation at Western University. And finally, did Gordon Lightfoot's music have an impact on you? We discuss the legacy of the legendary Canadian musician with Alan Cross, music historian and host of the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. All right, it is day three of the 31st Alberta general election. Both the UCP leader, Danielle Smith, and DP leader, Rachel Notley, been on the road trying to win votes. Though it is early in the campaign, both leaders taking a very different approach to what's now known as the Leaders Tour. Global's chief political correspondent, David. David Aiken joins us to talk about uh, what is going on on the campaign trail. Good morning to you, David. Thanks for being with us. Hey, glad, glad to be here, guys. I love elections. It's, uh, been ex- it's exciting. Come on. Just, it's like Christmas. Um, what do these leaders' tours tell us, David? Well, let's start with the the incumbent, the Premier Daniel Smith, the UCP leader. Um, you know, this is, you know, we, we had a poll yesterday that uh, Ipsos did for us, shows it's a, it's, a, it's a close race, but the UCP are definitely a little bit in the lead. They just have to hold what they have, and they're in government on May the 29th. And so far, what we're seeing, if we look at that leader's tour, Daniel Smith's tour, where has she been? It's a very conservative, if you pardon the pun, very conservative campaign. She didn't do any public events yesterday. We know she was somewhere in Calgary, but we didn't know where. And she's not doing any public events today. She is going to talk to our colleague, Shay Gannam, I think, uh, after sometime after 9 o'clock this morning. You'll hear that on uh, on uh, QR. But that's it. That's the only public events today. And when she launched, let's take a look at where she actually has been. On Monday, when she, they had the campaign launch, they launched way down in the uh, south end, southeast, the riding of Calgary Southeast. The local incumbent there is MLA Matt Jones. Matt Jones, four years ago, won by 40 points, more than 40 points. Calgary Southeast, I'll bet a loony right now, is probably going to go into the UCP column. There are other ridings in Calgary where ministers are at that are going to be very touch and go that you might want to play some defense, but the UCP decided to launch in Calgary Southeast where things are about as safe as they can be. On Sunday, Smith, the day before the, the, the writ started, Smith had two events. She launched the Calgary campaigns and then she launched the Edmonton campaigns. Where did she launch her Calgary campaign? Once again, let's go to the south. She was down in Calgary Fish Creek. That's a riding held by Richard Gottfried, UCP. Gottfried won by 30, more than 30 points last time. So again, very safe riding. So that's the only two places Smith has been in Calgary three days into the campaign. Uh, actually, and one was the, the day before the campaign. And then also on Sunday, she did go up to Edmonton. This is on Sunday, so the day before the campaign started. And the UCP only have one riding up there. It's Edmonton Southwest, and it's held by the Deputy Premier, Casey Maddu. And they've got to hold, they're going to try and hold that, but that's playing defense. And that's it. That's all we've seen of Smith so far. And that's exactly the sort of thing that you'd see from a campaign that is incumbent, that's confident, that all it has to do is take no risks, make sure Smith is not exposed to saying, sometimes she does say some things that get her in trouble, 
gamble. Why take the risk? Why take the gamble? Uh, not, you're not going to see Smith as sort of at a public event until tomorrow. So day three, and uh, she hasn't been to Edmonton officially during the campaign, and uh, we no public events or events they're telling us about today or yesterday. All right. So on the other side, uh, David, and thanks for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. David Aiken, uh, Global's chief political correspondent. Rachel Notley and the NDP cannot rest on what they have. They have to essentially wave the magic wand and turn blue seats into orange ones. Uh, what are they doing to try to accomplish that? Well, and this probably seems fairly obvious. Even though Notley is, of course, an Edmonton MLA, she launched the NDP campaign in Calgary because everybody knows Calgary is the ball game in this particular election. Now, she also has to hold what she has in addition to playing offense. So they launched the campaign in you know one of the strongholds for the NDP in Calgary. That's sort of uh, right downtown, just south of the Bow River. The riding of Calgary Buffalo. It's Joe Cece's riding. Remember, Joe Cece was the finance minister when Notley uh, formed government. So that's. They launched their campaign on Monday, but also on Sunday, again, just like Smith, uh, Notley had a couple of other events on Sunday to help some local campaigns. She was campaigning with the UCP candidate up in Calgary, Klein. Uh, that is a riding held by the seniors minister, Jeremy Nixon, so that the NDP want to pick up Calgary, Klein, and there's a good chance they might do that. Um, she was also down in the south, Calgary, Acadia. That's Tyler Shandro, the justice minister's riding. NDP want to pick up Tyler, or sorry, they want to pick up Calgary Acadia. And then on the southwest side of the city, Calgary Glenmore is the riding, and, and Notley essentially held a campaign event there. Uh, yesterday, we, remember I said Smith didn't have any public events yesterday, but yesterday, Notley had two events. Both were in UCP ridings, and both were about a theme that is absolutely crucial to the NDP success, and that's health care. Uh, Notley was in Calgary in the morning outside Foothills Hospital talking about health care. Where's Foothills Hospital? It's in the riding of Calgary Varsity. Calgary Varsity was one of the closest races in 2019. And who's the current MLA there? It's the health minister himself, Jason Copping. So that's where Notley was yesterday, playing offense in the health minister's riding outside Foothills Hospital. And then in the afternoon, she drove up, uh, drove up north to Red Deer. In, there's two Red Deer ridings, and she was in Red Deer. Notley was in Red Deer South, and uh, that's where the hospital is in Red Deer. There's a big uh, expansion project going on in Red Deer, the hospital. Uh, it's going to take like a decade. It's a very big deal, and the NDP believe they can do it faster than... Uh, the UCP can do it. Um, you know, you probably want to ask them how they're going to do that, but that's what they say. Um, so she was in Red Deer South playing offense yesterday. And Notley today, for the first time during the official campaign, will be in Edmonton. Um, and uh, that'll be the first leader to sort of make an official public stop in Edmonton. But the thing is, if you watch these tours, keep an eye. If the leader shows up in your riding, in your town, ask why. What does it say about things? If you see Notley towards the end of this end of the month, in, say, Red Deer or Grand Prairie or Lethbridge, that's probably a sign the, the NDP are saying, we're doing okay, good enough in Calgary, we don't have to put the leader there. Mm. But if Notley is spending all of her time doing two or three events a day in Calgary by the end, that's a sign things are really close, maybe not so good 
for the NDP. And on the flip side, if Smith all of a sudden comes out of the bubble that the campaign has her in, and she starts to do two or three campaign events, particularly in and around Calgary, that may be a sign the UCP is thinking, uh-oh, things are a little tighter than we think. But right now, we have a campaign of offense by the NDP and a campaign, very cautious, risk-averse campaign from the UCP, and it's reflected in what the leaders, leaders are doing each day. A really fantastic take. I love that. So, you know, if you could look at it, David, I mean, obviously we're just a couple of days into the official uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. Who's got momentum right now, would you say? That, that, yeah, great question. And, and, you know, it's really hard to tell because uh, the, each it, you have to look really at, at local campaigns. The campaign managers know this. They're both former staffers here in Ottawa. Uh, the guy running the NDP campaign used to work for Jack Layton, and the guy running the UCP campaign, uh, his name is Steve Outhouse, a Newfoundlander that used to work for Stephen Harper. This is their, They're both rookies as campaign managers, but they've got tons of campaign experience federally and in other provinces and with leadership rivals. And they know that, you know, there's 87 ridings. You don't have to win all of them. You just have to win, and you know, 44 for your majority. I've spoken to both of them, and they're really, you know, you guys are the center of attention in Calgary, and it's really the ridings, I would say, uh, certainly the downtown ridings, ridings in the northeast, ridings in the north northwest, maybe the ridings in the southwest, I think southeast Calgary. Um, again, that's why I'm kind of surprised that Smith showed up in two ridings in the southeast, because there's no game there. There's no. It's, that's probably going to be UCP. But it's going to be, as you talk about momentum and activity, leaders and canvassers uh, you know door to door all sorts of activity in in the in the other quadrants I think for Calgary that this is where this election really is going to be won or lost um, and you know that's I think not only the whole province a lot of people in the whole country are going to be uh, keeping it on Calgary even though the whole country's yeah. cheering for the Oilers right please exactly. tell me you guys are cheering for the Oilers that. even in Calgary yeah, right? I am anyway got to go Alberta <laughs> I know it's tough but David in the meantime we keep him go Alberta exactly absolutely the writ was dropped like 48 hours ago, and look at how much ground you've had to cover so far. <laughs> this is going to be uh, one uh, ring-a-ding-a-dong dandy over the next few weeks, and we'll be checking back in with you. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, no problem. Have a great morning, guys. You too. David Aiken is Global's chief political correspondent. Solar panels could help us farm more efficiently. Joining us to talk about the future of agrivoltaic farming is Joshua Pierce, professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Western University, Chair of Information Technology and Innovation, I should say. Good morning to you, Doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, Please obvious visit. first question, sir. What the heck is agrivoltaic farming? Can you define for us, please? Sure. It's the combination of solar photovoltaic and agriculture. So you're purposely integrating solar cells that turn sunlight directly into electricity onto your conventional farm growing whatever you happen to be growing. All right. So does this look uh, just like we would see with solar panels, perhaps in, in residential neighborhoods or operating businesses? Is it the same kind of technology or is it different when you fit it into the farm? It's a, a similar type of module, but the way that the racking is designed is completely different. And so in, you've probably seen a conventional solar farm where all of the panels are sort of at a fixed tilt angle, and they're put as close together as you possibly can with just getting a little bit of shading on each row to row to capture all the sunlight. In agrivoltaics, what you do is you space the panels out a little bit more so that you can do some farming beneath them or next to them. And in the extreme cases, like say you're talking about doing something like corn, you would either put the solar panels very high up on stilts and not, again, not cover everything, or you'd uh, put them vertically 
and so they would look like fence rows um, so that you could still do farming in between and uh, you're capturing the sunlight, actually a, a surprisingly amount of sunlight, even when you're putting solar panels uh, directly up and down. Now, lots of people say, you know, when it comes to solar in Canada, it's not efficient, it's not effective, it's too cold, etc. Your thoughts on that in, in terms of, you know, creating this kind of farming here in, in this country? Yeah, so that that's totally wrong. <laughs> uh, Canada is actually blessed with fairly good sunlight, particularly in some places like Alberta. And we, we get much more than, say, Europe, which is very much more um, far along the path of, of integrating solar into their farming and into their general electric grid. It turns out that solar cells actually work better when it's colder. So your your best case scenario is that cold day in the winter where you're getting a lot of snow on the ground that's reflecting sunlight back up onto the panels. It's cold, so they're operating more efficiently, and you still have, have the light. And so already throughout most of Canada, depending upon the rate structure for your, your utility, it already makes economic sense. It's the lowest cost um, new generation of electricity available. And the beauty of integrating it with agrivoltaics, and this is completely non-intuitive, at least it was to me, that for most crops, when you integrate at least some solar, you can actually increase the crop yield. So by partially shading crops, even those that you would normally think of as wanting to full direct sunlight, you get more crop and you get all the electricity. And so you can either think of it as solar electricity as subsidizing the crops so that your food prices go down, or the other way around that perhaps the added revenue from the farm actually makes the electricity cost less. Mm. And, but we know the importance of, of the ag industry. And uh, we've, we've covered the fact that, you know, the solar panels do have the energy and uh, enough of a supply of this unlimited resource known as the sunshine. But the quality and consistency of the energy uh, produced uh, from solar, is, is that enough uh, to, to, to power, for example, a, a whole farm? Uh, can, can it be uninterrupted? Uh, well, to have uninterrupted power and have this, what you'd call dispatchable power, you do need to add something else, in, usually a form of storage. But in most cases, like the vast majority of cases, people aren't trying to live off the grid in the middle of nowhere by themselves. If you do that, you do need batteries and backup generation. But most cases, agrivoltaic uh, fields are integrated into the grid. And so a typical farmer's field would be even using very uh, lightly, like low-density solar power would have far more power than the farmer itself would use. And so the, all the extra power would be generated and pushed back onto the grid to provide for you know their neighbors and industry or the cities. And so powering a farm is fairly easy. Uh, what we're talking about here with kind of mass scale agrivoltaics is the powering of society using this coupling of agricultural and uh, solar power. So, Dr. Pierce, what do you see as the future of agrivoltaic farming? You know, how, how can we scale it up to meet the growing demand when it comes to sustainable food, energy production right across this country? So, I, I think in Canada, we have an enormous opportunity to really put, move out ahead of this. We're already, you know, global leaders in agriculture. And we're, you know, we're not the bottom of the barrel on solar, uh, but starting in agrivoltaics, we have an enormous potential. Uh, in Asia and Europe and the U.S., they're all moving into this technological space very, very aggressively. So, you know, there's hundreds of different farms that have tried dozens of different crops. And for most crops that we grow in Canada, there's at least a study somewhere, it might be in Japan or France or Germany, that has shown that you get increased yields. And the, the reasoning is you create a microclimate around the agrivoltaic arrays that conserve water, protect the plants from hail or from excessive winds or excessive sunshine, and say so that's where the yield increases is coming. 
And so if we take our already kind of very strong and robust agriculture sector and make it better while also producing an enormous amount of uh, solar electricity that, again, will only help the Canadian economy and offers the potential to start exporting a lot of it to the much more dirtier grids in the U.S. I think it's just a, it's a huge, massive potential for our, our country, and we're definitely moving into it. There is a nonprofit group that's basically an industry alliance that is called Agrivoltaics Canada that is trying very much to move this technology to scale uh, within Canada. Speaking with Joshua Pierce, Professor and Chair in Information Technology and Innovation at Western University. New technology. Anytime we talk about new technology and rolling something out, uh, Dr. Pierce, is, is is it going to cost, I, I guess what I'm getting at is we know that the price of food is high. It's hard to put food on the table these days as Canadians. We want to lower our prices. Would this not inevitably, investing in these farms and this kind of tech, raise the prices that we are going to see at grocery stores, for example? So it, it should actually reduce it, but again, how the economics works is fairly complicated. So the, the investment that you need per acre to have an agrivoltaic farm versus a conventional farm, you're putting in far more money up front. But the revenue that you're generating is far, far more than you're used to, to doing on, say, a typical farmer's field. And so there's profit in there, right? And so the, the trick is going to be able to find the business models and the collaborations where financiers can come in and provide the, the initial capital, they get a return on the investments, the farmers get another generation or another source of revenue for themselves to maybe, you know, make it by the bad years when, you know, crops fail or disease or anything else happens. Um, and that should overall lead to reduced uh, food costs. The solar alone can usually, the solar alone is, is economic by itself. And so when you add it to agriculture and you get that increased yield, we should be producing more food, which should lower the cost. But there's as you know, many, many factors that go into the absurd prices that we're all paying at the grocery store right now. So true. Uh, so. Uh, Dr. Pierce, <laughs> quick question, and sort of just going back to that, you know, does solar work in Canada? Just Someone just sent in a picture of a, a solar field here in Alberta covered in snow. When those solar panels are covered in snow, which we get a lot of in Canada, are they no longer functioning? More or less. You might get a very tiny amount of solar energy going through the snow. And absolutely, that is an issue. So I would say for Alberta and the large fields that we're talking about here, the type of racking I would, I think is going to be the most effective is vertical racks so that the solar panels are sticking straight up and down like a fence. And so you get all the, the same advantages that you would get by kind of breaking the wind on the side of the farm or the fence. Um, but now you can put it throughout the field as well. And, and or uh, single axis trackers. And so these are uh, solar panels that move to follow the path of the sunlight during the day and single axis means they're only doing it during the day they're not following it all year round so it's usually uh, kind of going d direct vertical all the way to direct horizontal and with that you get far more energy out per unit solar panel you can move them out of the way to harvest crops or do anything that you would normally be doing on the in, on the farm and it allows you to very easily clear the snow during the winter so th that technology is probably the ones that we're going to see um sort of most mature the fastest and get kind of put out at the, you know, the multi-megawatt scale here within Canada. Very interesting topic. Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks for the discussion. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you. Joshua Pierce, Professor and Chair in Information Technology and Innovation at Western University. QR Calgary, talk on FM and mornings with Sue and Andy. Could you want anything more? Talk on FM, QR Calgary. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down. The 
the big lake they call Gitchagumi. I think that's my favorite Gordon Lightfoot song, Edmund Fitzgerald, and his music helped paint a picture in Canada and of our country. His songs resonate with the generations. We lost a Canadian music icon this week, and joining us to talk about how he will be remembered is Alan Cross, music historian, host of the ongoing history of new music. Good morning to you, Alan. Good morning. This is such a, a sad week for, for Canadians. It truly is. That's a, you know, why is it? Why, why did Canadians just resonate so much to the music of Gordon Lightfoot? Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, he came up in the 1960s parallel to Canada sort of coming out on the world stage with 1967 and the uh, Expo and we got our own flag, and we were a young country that was no longer under the thumb of Britain. And uh, there was this cohort of singer-songwriters. There was Gordon Lightfoot, but there was also Neil Young, there was Joni Mitchell, and there was Buffy St. Marie. All of them together sort of formed the, the nascent Canadian singer-songwriter sound, uh, especially since a lot of them worked and hung out together in Yorkville, that two-square-block area in downtown Toronto that was a breeding ground for so much music. Uh, for a couple of years in the 60s. Uh, I, I think also Gordon sang about things that mattered to Canadians. I mean, up until he came along, uh, you know, Canadian culture and song was something that a lot of people said, well, you got to listen to it because, well, it's good for you. It's good for the country. It's like eating your vegetables. So you may not like it, but uh, it's, it's, it benefits everybody so, so here. But Gordon Lightfoot was, was, was different. People adopted, people flocked to what he was singing about. And uh, it, it wasn't just Canadians, it was also Americans. In the early 1970s, he became this big commercial star with top 10 records and um, big selling albums and big concerts. So, he, you know, he, he was one of the, the OG of Canadian singer-songwriters. Mm -hmm. and, and Alan, I know, you know, folk music is folk music, but... One of the things that he did so well, the, the stories that he would weave into three minutes of music. I don't know if we're ever going to see anything quite like that. Not only was did he have the folk down, but such a unique storytelling style, I find. What do you think of that? Well, okay, I'm going to sort of answer that um, in a different way. And I would agree with you 100%. I mean, yes, he, he wrote a lot of songs about... Uh, trains and shipwrecks, absolutely. But he, he, there was something about his music, lyrically, his voice, um, the, the languid way in which he delivered a lot of his songs that was just so popular. I'm going to give you a list of just some of the people who have covered Gordon Lightfoot songs. Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Barbara Streisand, Neil Young, Glenn Campbell, The Grateful Dead, Olivia Newton-John, Jimmy Buffett, Sarah McLaughlin, John Mellencamp, Johnny Mathis, Paul Weller, The Tragically Hip, Jim Croce, and about a dozen other big names. And I saved the, the, the punchline for last. Bob Dylan covered some Gordon Lightfoot songs. Now, Bob Dylan is arguably the greatest singer-songwriter that the universe has ever produced. But I'm going to quote Dylan here. I can't think of any Gordon Lightfoot song I don't like. Every time I hear a song of his, it's like I wish it would last forever. And then there's this line. Lightfoot became a mentor for a long time. Now let's, let's let that sink in. Bob Dylan, the greatest singer-songwriter of all time, 
has always considered Gordon Lightfoot someone he could learn from, a mentor. And that just basically tells you everything you need to know about Gordon Lightfoot as a songwriter. Brilliant. He was a brilliant man. You're right. We, we've lost someone who is clearly very important, not just to Canada, but the world. And uh, it's a shame. But his music will live on. Thank goodness. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Alan. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Alan Cross, music historian and host of the Ongoing History of New Music.